0: Welcome to Broadway Radio's Tell Me More. I'm your host, Matt Tamanini. Here on Tell Me More, we strive to talk about projects and topics that don't often get covered on theater podcasts. Well, today I am very excited about this show because it is our fourth annual Tony Omnibus episode. Every year, I try to come at the Tony Awards in a way that provides an all-encompassing look at the Broadway season. Sometimes that's by talking to the folks who work in the shadows to make the theater that we love happen, Sometimes it's filling in the cracks between the more traditional theatrical coverage, and sometimes it's trying to get an inside look at all of the disparate pieces that have to come together to make a Broadway show. That is how I approached this year's episode. Today, I will be talking with six individuals. Four of them are 2019 Tony nominees, and two of them are journalists. And even more, those four nominees all come from different disciplines within the Broadway community. First, I will speak to the Tony-winning star of The Prom, Beth Level. Then I talk to arts and entertainment writer and Broadway radio friend, Ashley Steves. Then you will hear my conversation with David Korns, the Tony-winning scenic designer behind the incredible feat that is what folks see on stage at Beetlejuice every night. Then I have the distinct pleasure to talk to the Tony-nominated MacArthur Genius-winning book writer of Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations, Dominique Moriso. Following that will be a chat with the senior editor from American Theater, Deep Tran, and we will wrap up this episode with a flourish by talking to the incomparable Tony-winning choreographer of Kiss Me Kate, Warren Carlyle. Now, I understand that's a lot in one episode, so if that's too much for you to listen to in one sitting, don't worry. I have timestamps for each interview in the show notes, where you can also find social media information for each of the guests, as well as links to their specific shows and work. With each of the interviews of this year's nominees, I specifically wanted, at least in part, to talk about how they do the thing that they do, and what makes them and their projects unique and specific. Then, with Ashley, we discuss a show that has become even more important and powerful, even just over the five weeks since the Tony nominations were announced. And then with Deep, we talk about her recent article that advocates for including New York theater outside of the Broadway sphere In the annual Tony Awards
1: So don't give up hope You ask Is she perfect? My answer is no
2: I know what you're doing
1: Her range needs expanding Her edges need sanding But she can become Up on her.
2: Yeah. You're trying to appeal to the fan in me. Well, it won't work. I'm not a fan anymore.
0: Okay, after that lengthy preamble, let's get into it. Up first, I had the privilege of talking to and laughing with the thoroughly delightful Beth Level, who plays Dee Allen in the prom at the Long Acre Theater. As Beth mentions, this is her 13th Broadway show, including her Tony-winning turn as the title character in The Drowsy Chaperone. Levels, co-star and co-book writer from that show Bob Martin, co-wrote the book for The Prom as well, so it is a very happy reunion for those two. If you've been paying attention to theatrical media, and in many cases not just theatrical media, over the past month or so, chances are you've seen Beth just about everywhere, but I happen to get to speak to her on an unusually uneventful day, as you will hear in the opening of our chat. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Beth Level. How's your day been? Have they got you running all over the place today?
1: Not today, Oh, but yesterday, the day before, the day before, tomorrow, the day after, the day after. <laughs> it's a Cadillac of problems.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I have uh, seen you everywhere, which is a, a lovely thing. Um, so uh, I'm glad that you had a little bit of time to, to rest and taken some of it to talk to me.
1: Thank you. Back at you. Yes, I've been doing glamorous things like vacuuming and cleaning the litter. It's really <laughs> the, the,
0: it's so. It's such a glamorous, glamorous one. Oh, the glamorous life! Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, So, uh, how how has this the the last uh, few weeks and this whole kind of award season been? Uh, Fortunately, you guys opened in the fall, so that kind of takes away some of those normal responsibilities. But it also means that you you have some time to maybe go and do a few more appearances and interviews than you normally would during this time of year. It really does
1: because I remember with Drowsy, we had we were the last show that opened. So not only were we in award season, but we were o- also opening a show. So it was unbelievable. It's It was hectic and it's fabulous. And what I've
3: really noticed
1: since Baby It's You, which was eight years ago, that last time I did this. And it was 13 years ago since Drowsy Chaperone. <laughs> I can't believe but what that. I, really, I know. How is that possible? And I'm still the same age. What I've really <laughs> noticed is that how much more social media is now uh, in the mix, you know, it's so many more venues and avenues to have a discussion and a dialogue and a photo with. So it's, it's amazing how much information is being asked to give from me <laughs> to, you know, whatever, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a lot, but it's fascinating. It's exhausting. It's wonderful. It's thrilling. You know, it's a, it's a once in a lifetime moment. It's a once in a lifetime event that I've had the Fortunate, fortunate enough to be on my third time around. It's really, yeah. it's really special.
0: Now that this is your third time, is it different than the first time with Drowsy and then last time with Baby? It's you. Is is it, do you come in with a different perspective? Is it maybe do you know what to Absolutely. expect?
1: Yeah, yeah. My perspective is I kind of have the wisdom to know what's happening. I know what's going on. I know what's required of this season. I know that these five and a half weeks are going to be a glorious bedlam. Um, and with Baby It's You, the show had closed. So I actually got to just sit and observe everything as opposed to having the pressure to perform, i.e. drowsy chaperone. Because I had to go do a number as Beatrice Stockwell and then get
4: back into Beth's clothes and then get back into
1: Beatrice Stockwell clothes and then get back into Beth's clothes. I remember maybe it's you thinking, I don't have any pressure at oh, all. I can really <laughs> sit in the audience, because I knew I wasn't going to win. I could just sit and enjoy it and just experience it like that with none of those, you know, the added responsibilities and nerves. And I actually, my older son went with me my date, and Hugh Jackman was sitting behind us, and the whole cast of Book of Mormon, was. that was the Mormon year. And the the guys who I can't think of their name who wrote South Park and my son was to watch it through his eyes be so starstruck awesome. that he hardly speak. It was really thrilling. And now prom, you know, the show that means so much to me and has I you know was written for me, and I'm just so 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 proud of it and everyone. So this is icing on the cake. This one I can't wait to just experience the rest of this madness it's it's so exciting and thrilling and i'm so proud
0: Well, and what's so interesting about this show is maybe compared to especially Baby, It's You, it's that it's not like you're alone when it comes to uh, nominations, Uh, not only just in general with the show, but I mean, heck, you're even in a little bit of competition uh, with a cast member. And then you've got Brooks. I mean, not that I'm sure there's a whole lot of actual competition between you two doing West Side Story fights. Yeah, no, no, of course. Oh, But but it's got to be a cool. Yeah, but it's got to be cool to go through this experience especially for you who's done it and uh caitlin oh, yeah. it's their first time uh maybe you know to, to be able to kind of watch it through theirs
1: oh it's great you know and it's it's great to go through all of this stuff you know we sit backstage and, in our dressing rooms and have therapy with each other talking about well how was your day what was the all right all right are you surviving what do you need it's yeah. really nice to have someone to listen and understand
0: yeah well and that's one of the things that i wanted to uh, specifically, talk to you about is being a uh, one of the leaders of a, of a Broadway company, and specifically right. a leading lady. Because not only are you a leading lady, but you play a leading lady, and. While you do have, uh, you know, a first-time nominee and Caitlin in your category, she's not making her Broadway debut. But there's a ton of people in the cast making their Broadway debuts. I think it was like thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah, so it's
1: my thirteenth Broadway show. Thirteen years since Drowsy. This is, I said, thirteen. It's like the number thirteen is everywhere. That's, it's that's really lucky. thrilling. Thirteen yeah. Broadway debuts. Yeah, and and being the leading lady, and and Brooks and Chris and Angie and I all feel this way, that we feel a responsibility to also be leaders and to lead by example. And, uh, you know, because they're all looking to us, and we like to set a really good example, just as we look to them and we're in awe of their multi-quadrupled talents. So, yeah, it's a privilege to be uh, a leading lady and to be a leading lady like Diva, a, a Diva leading lady who's sexy, you know, and I'm not 20. It's really cool. <laughs> well,
0: and, and you mentioned that word Diva, because I wanted to ask about that, too. A lot of the reviews and press reference D.D. as a Diva, which obviously in the context of the show uh, probably gets right to the heart of it. But, you know, for me, I, I always maybe cringe probably isn't the right word, but I always kind of look askance at that word, because on one hand, you know, yeah. it can refer to, you know, a, a sign of respect, a grand dame, a, an acknowledgement of right. talent and position. But then on the other side, it can be a bit pejorative. Yeah, it
3: can have, yeah, it yeah. Can have a, a, a,
1: absolutely, kind of have a negative connotation. Steedy, I think,
0: uses the diva word
1: in kind of a negative connotation. And I'll take the grand dame from Beth. Thank you very much. Yes,
3: you're welcome. It's yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she is definitely... She's a narcissistic diva. She has a lot more adjectives attached to diva
0: than just diva. Yeah, yeah. And and that's something that despite some other words that might get thrown around, that's not there's no real corollary for a leading man. There's no uh, diva equivalent uh, for men, right. do you, especially with maybe this. Why is you know, that? I think I know why. I think it's because our society is fairly sexist. Um, (laughs) You're absolutely right. Yeah. But I mean, do you think that your responsibilities as a leading lady are different than not necessarily of, you know, Brooks and Chris, but just in general, is, is the way that the younger people in the cast look to you and what they want and need from you. Is that different than if you think you were a leading man?
1: No, I don't think so at all. I think, um, They look at Brooks and I the exact same way. You know, uh, I don't think it has anything to do with me being a woman or him being a man. We just lead with our best selves and kindness and love and professionalism. And that has no gender. You know, professionalism and kindness are gender free. And that's what we we like to lead with that. So I don't think they look at us different at all. You know, Brooks is a little louder. That's about it.
0: <laughs> that yeah that that and that comes through uh, in the characters too, which is so fun. Well, because there you like go. You, like you said, this was written uh, for for you, and in a lot of ways, I would imagine with so many of you guys being a part of this production for a number of years, even before Atlanta. Seven years. Yeah, like this is Seven something you could four really. Four of us put, particularly. Yeah, this could really you could really put your mark on these on these characters. What has that process been like? For you, not only as a as a performer in the show, but as maybe the grand dame thing comes into play here, as somebody who is able to kind of put their imprint on a show that's yeah. being so well received as it is.
1: It's oh, it's it's so lovely that I know that my DNA is all over the show, particularly all over Didi. Just as Brooks and Angie and Chris, same way. I mean, from the first table, untitled Casey Nicola project, sitting around reading it seven <laughs> years ago, can know that we were such an important part um, of this birthing process for this show. And then to have it so, loved and so well received and be so meaningful and entertaining to so many people, that just doesn't happen that much, at least in my career. You know, Drowsy was, I originated that role, but it wasn't written for me. They just didn't know what to do with it until they finally gave up and cast me. And then between me and the creatives, we figured out how to bring that, that character off the page. But with Dee Dee, I feel like I have such a great responsibility in defining who she is, who she is now, and who she is actually still you know, evolving on stage every night to be. It's live theater. We've learned so much since we opened November 15th. And that, like I said, is a privilege, and it, I'm, it makes me feel really proud of that.
0: What, what, what have you learned? If you know, it's been now almost six months uh, since you officially yeah, opened. Seven, seven months weeks. on Broadway. Yes, what, what have you learned you. since then?
1: Well, it's like you know, it, we're a living organism. Live theater is. It's in the moment. Each audience is different. Each audience their are seeing partners are different. Eight shows a week, and. We just learn, like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that line could get a laugh if I did this. Oh my gosh, look at this moment that Emma and Dee Dee can have. I that we discovered that last month. I discovered something <laughs> in Act Two three weeks ago, and it's just a constant discovery of something. And hopefully, you know, and then Casey or his assistants will come in and go, "Oh, that's great," or "Oh no, don't do that." <laughs> and then we keep growing. That's you know, we're artists. We're 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 comedians. We're we're all of the above. We we have to keep growing. It um it's part of my process. I just I am constantly discovering her, and what else I didn't know about Dee Dee. Oh, it's it's great. and Michael Potts and I are discovering all these great things. It's it's great. At some things the audience wouldn't even notice, but we notice. You know, it's a layering. It's a defining. It's growing and learning and, and just expanding. And like I said, sometimes the audience would never even know, but we know in the in the relationship development on stage, it's fun.
0: <laughs> it's, it, it sounds like it. with actors. Yeah, well, and uh, what I think is so interesting about uh, this show is that we've seen it, uh, like we said, on stage now for six, seven months. But because of this show, it's it's spinning off into a book, and we have the whole Ryan Murphy thing, oh, how's and that it, which is amazing and incredible and I think it's so it's so powerful that this story that I really I I try not to 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 do much of the talking in interviews but I just want to say that what I really appreciated about what you guys created is that I think going in I had expectations of what this was going to be and who the jokes were going to be about and then to see yeah exactly and then to see that flipped but the message to also be so powerful and so personal i i I just so admire what you all have created and i'm just giddy that so many other people are going to get to experience it in whatever way that is whether it's on stage on screen or in a book i think that's only a only an incredible thing an amazing thing
1: yeah i could not agree more the more this message gets out there in whatever way it can the happier i'll be yeah and And i'd love them to come sit and put their butts in the seat at the long acre theater and see yes. where the original thing was
0: at <laughs> as but they should
1: it's really, thrilling. it's really thrilling oh my gosh every time I turn around it's like what do you mean there's a book that's fabulous
0: <laughs> well uh, I, I you mentioned discovering a new moment uh, with Emma and I do want to mention uh, you know Caitlin that you guys are both in the same category for uh, for the Tonys which is I you know I think we see that a decent amount, and we've seen it a decent amount this year in featured categories. But to have two right. leading ladies and at different points in their career sharing a show, sharing the this experience, what has it been like with her right. since she was one of the, the few younger, the high school characters that actually did keep with the show since Atlanta? What has this process exactly. been like uh, to kind of share this whole ride with her?
1: I'm so proud of her. And I'm so proud of her, Emma, that I feel like we are celebrating together this whole Tony leading actress thing, going through it just day by day. Like I said, we see each other every night. She comes into my dressing room. We have a moment. We we love each other. And we just share. And she is taking it one day at a time. And if there's any questions about what's next, it's like, come in. Let's let's talk through it. (laughs) Yeah, why don't you wear that? But she's so... She's so confident. And I think in a way, even though she's so much younger than I am, I sometimes think she's so much more mature than I. <laughs> I had that when I was her age. And I, Like I said, I'm so proud of her. And this is going to be a spectacular, spectacular event for her. Yeah. And, you know, I can't wait to see what happens in her career. I just can't wait. Yeah. And I'm glad that I'm here to watch it start like this so amazingly.
0: Yeah. Has there has there been a, a moment with this show, whether it's been during this last few weeks or month of, of awards season or in during you know the lead up to opening or anything that's really stood out to you as is, is kind of defining what the experience with the prom in totality has been?
1: Boy, I could I could talk to you an hour about that, but <laughs> I think what's most what comes to mind immediately is what people say to us in letters and at the stage door to the point where some people, particularly the, the LGBT, LGBTQ youth talk and thank us so much for finally seeing themselves represented, loved, seen, respected, heard on stage for the first time. And that to me is the height and the epitome of, Art and theater, when we can reach out and change someone's life like that, that that is what the prom has become. In addition to this delicious musical comedy, that we have both things going on is uh, rare. And it really, I know I've used this word, but it really is a privilege to tell this story and hear it affect, I hear at night, the audience, you can hear a pin drop at the end of the show. They're leaning so forward into the story. It's just, it's just, I'm sorry, I'm getting to (laughs) clear. It's just spectacular.
0: Yeah. It's definitely, it's a special and it's a unique show because I don't, and and I'm not saying this just to blow smoke. I've said this to many people before. I don't know if I've ever been to a show where I've gone, Back and forth so much between laughing hysterically and, laughing. and sobbing hysterically, like I, the last fifteen minutes of the show, I just openly wept from my seat it was I wasn't even trying to stop it. I just knew it well, was going to come know, we
1: hear that we hear that on stage it it's so powerful i've never been in a show where i uh, I hear and feel the audience so deeply, particularly in the last fifteen minutes of the show and then when the curtain call when everyone gets to release all mm-hmm. those feelings and literally literally are standing on their feet at the entire curtain call finale, dancing with us and screaming. It's like, Oh, thank you. <laughs> I could do the show as long as my body would allow me.
0: Yeah. I, I definitely believe that. And I hope that's uh that's a long time. Well, I I'll, I'll wrap up here because one of the things that from somebody who works in the, the theater community that I love is that there's a lot of, you know fun inside theatery jokes right. in this in this show um but i'm I, I i can only imagine what you all came up with in the rehearsal room and then maybe didn't make huh? it to the page yeah for whatever okay. reason oh, is there that anything is that you can share
1: another show that i would love to <laughs> the prom see. after dark before below the prom you know uh unedited it's <laughs> Yeah, of course, I can't think of a thing now. But I remember at the beginning of the show, there was the opening number went through I don't know fifty four different songs to the point where in Atlanta I was carrying lyrics in my bra because I didn't know what the the first you know they changed lyrics and stuff constantly. But when the first lab we did, the opening was completely different, and it started with the three of us, Chris, Brooks, and myself, in terrible Broadway shows. And Brooks' show was the musical version of Forrest Gump. <laughs> Chris's was the musical version of Long Day's Journey and Tonight called Journey. <laughs> and mine was a musicalized version of uh, Goonies. Oh. And so we, each, each of us had a, a musical moment showing that number oh. in those god-awful musicals. And singing about how much we hated our lives, of course that was cut, but it was some of the funniest stuff you have ever seen in your life. talking forest stumps singing about going to Nam and chocolate nougats terrible it was terrible, but oh. terribly funny
0: oh, I hope we get that at a at a fifty four below or, or some sort of benefit at some yeah, point that's you' that it,
1: you'll, yeah, it's really funny, it was funny, but didn't serve the piece, and you know you know we should, we figure that out. But I should start writing them down, the things that were cut, because they were a lot of them were priceless. Oh, that's incredible. I mean, Bob Martin and Chad Bagoon are so flippant funny. <laughs> yeah. They're the funny team. I want to tell the people of whatever this town's called going on here and frankly I'm appalled I read three quarters of a new story and knew I had to come
0: Up, I spoke with arts writer Ashley Steves, who has been a guest on Broadway Radio before, to talk about one specific show this season that is increasingly becoming more powerful and poignant as the world around it is frighteningly changing.
5: When I was 15 years old. I would travel the country giving speeches about the Constitution for prize money. I thought it would be interesting to go back and see what my 15-year-old self loved so much about this document, because I did. I loved it. Thomas Jefferson said that the dead should not govern the living. But Thomas Jefferson is dead, so why is she listening to
4: him? Do I get to go into another room and decide what's best for all of you? Probably not, right? Right? Think about this for a moment. The Constitution
1: doesn't tell you all the rights that you have because it doesn't know.
0: So we want to welcome back Ashley Steves to Broadway Radio, someone who you're going to be hearing uh, quite a bit of over this next week on Broadway Radio, and maybe in the future. We'll uh, we'll talk about that later. Uh, So welcome back, Ashley.
5: Hi, Matt.
0: So I brought you on here to talk about a show that I think probably the show that has been the most surprising for me for this whole season. Because I I talked about this on today on Broadway earlier this week, and I said that Earlier this year, there was kind of a fight between what show was actually going to be able to get the rental contract from Second Stage to mm-hmm. occupy the Helen Hayes Theater this spring. I thought that the correct move would have been the other off-Broadway, super buzzy, kind of controversial show that Second Stage decided not to go with. And mm-hmm. instead, they went with what the Constitution means to me. And I thought, that's great. Um, I yeah. just don't know that how that will do in a Broadway house. And I have not, it's been a long time since I have been as happy to be as wrong as I am (laughs) because (laughs) the show is doing great. Um, It's selling incredibly well, making money. I'm so happy. Mm. Uh, And I'm glad that I got to see it because I wouldn't have seen it if it hadn't transferred to Broadway. But you know, the, the, I, I marveled at Heidi Schreck's storytelling ability in the way that she yes. structured this show. As Absolutely. a good liberal, uh, as I am, the content and the message obviously resonated to me. And just as a human, I couldn't help but empathize with the stories that she told about herself and her family and other people. Mm-hmm. But actually, I also realized that there is another far more personal level to this show that I will probably never be able to feel or experience just because of who I am. So that is why I wanted to see that if in your brilliance, you can help (laughs) communicate just how personally (laughs) resonant this show is for so, so many women who see it, especially (sighs) with all of the stuff going on Mm -hmm. in our society since the show opened. Like There's so much crap that makes this show so much more poignant than it was, than you probably ever could have imagined, even just when it decided
5: to come to Broadway. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Stuff is a good word to put it. I I got nothing else. (laughs) I've got nothing else. (laughs) Uh, But I had a similar experience as far as I didn't get to see it off Broadway. So when I finally saw it uh, on Broadway, I had seen the Ferryman in London thought, oh, wow, this is going to win the Tony if it transfers. And then I saw Network and thought, this is going to win the Tony if it transfers, and that wasn't even nominated. Uh, then I saw what the Constitution means to me, and it's kind of like I don't even know why the collective we are still having a conversation about any other play winning. <laughs> Just, And that's, that's certainly not to disparage the ferryman or Gary or Choir Boy or Inc., but I think what the Constitution means to me especially is – an anchor for our place in time right now. I'm always kind of really focused on that and our cultural moment, how we perceive the things we see and consume and just the lens through which we see things. I think the show has been a long time coming, this existing in the world. And (laughs) every time I think about the fact it's on Broadway, I kind of have to like pinch myself or splash myself with cold water. (laughs) But, yeah, I, it's, we're in a very difficult political moment. I don't necessarily – it is a political show, but I don't want it to be shoehorned into it being a political show or whatever because I think, A, all art is inherently political. Um, but, you know – I Personally, I'm very selective of the news I consume because I'm stressed and anxious enough as a queer woman and feeling a bit burnt out. But you look at everything that's going on the news right now. You have abortion bans in progress in I believe 9 different states and people of color and immigrants and queer people, especially trans people, women just all being attacked right now and right now the deck is so stacked for marginalized people to fail.
0: Yeah, and and I might be splitting hairs, or um, you know, kind of making a differentiation where where one doesn't exist. But I don't necessarily think it's a political show. I think it's a show about politics. Exactly. But I don't I don't think it's a political show because I, certainly there will be some people, if depending on what side of the aisle they come from, that might come into the show and, and see it as an attack. But I think if you really come into it. Not dispassionately, but as neutral as possible. I don't think Heidi is making a a political point and saying one side is better than the other. I think she's saying humanity deserves better. And maybe that, that's sad if we make that a political point. But it is definitely a show about politics. But I left, again, it's self-admitted liberal and progressive, but <laughs> I didn't see it as – Political and and maybe that's just w- my perspective where I came from, but I think that is a differentiation that people need to hear. This isn't something where they're going to come and get lectured about what they do and who they vote for. They're going right. to come and get involved or and get and get information from somebody much smarter than me, at least. Um and and hopefully they can use
5: that in their own lives however they see fit. I think Heidi Schreck is smarter than all of us.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah.
5: Yeah. No, I I agree with you, and I think there are two sides of it where it's political and also, as you said, not political. You're not going to the show. You're not going to get a lecture if you go to the show, uh, no matter who you voted for. It's nothing like I've ever seen before on stage, certainly not on Broadway. <laughs> in terms of its structure and its content and its relationship with the audience, which is what I think is most important. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it's a show that only works on the stage, which is basically the reason theater will never die is it's the only art form that is dependent on its relationship with its audience. Hmm. But you have the show where you have the element of debate and the audience participation at the end And it's just a uniquely theatrical experience. And for this to be that show where it's very personal for Shrek and also very universal for women identifying persons where you see – her hope when she's a teenager turn into trauma, turn into righteous anger, and then back into hope when you get to see Thursday Williams and Rosedeli Cyprian up on that stage and hopefully they're both going to rule this world someday. <laughs> I mean, that's powerful and so genius. Yeah. Well and and what's so interesting about
0: this show is that I think because Heidi Shrek is such a masterful storyteller, yes. that it does come off like it is something that she is just doing off the cuff or something that she has notes and kind of has bullet points. She's going to hit. Yeah. This show would not be as effective in my opinion, if it wasn't masterfully constructed the way that she leads you through the timeline of her life and through the life of the constitution works because of how integrated those stories are, but her, Mm -hmm. it works personally because of how conversational she's able to make that journey through both her personal and constitutional life.
5: Mm -hmm. I've seen two main complaints about the show. One of which is that there's little structure or it kind of falls apart at the end, which is not the case. And the second being that she's not acting. And I mean, she received a nomination for leading actress for this. And You know, I I think if you if you think any woman can talk about what it means to be a woman in this country right now, let alone over eight shows a week without leaving a little bit of herself behind so she can actually stay in the present and not dissociate from it. I think you've kind of missed the point of the show. Like, of course, she is acting. It's just, you know, sometimes acting is less Becoming somebody else entirely and maybe more knowing which parts of yourself to shut off and when.
0: Well, and, and I think we're gonna get this is a different conversation, which I didn't intend to get in, but you know, yeah. I, I think a lot of our favorite actors and actresses are people who are incredibly compelling while essentially playing variations of themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, and that's not a bad thing. Like, look, I, I I have not seen Hillary and Clinton yet. I will see it here Ooh. shortly, but I've seen Lori Metcalf for my entire life on stage and screen. I imagine that Laurie Metcalf is pretty much doing some variation of one of the characters that I've seen her play throughout the course (laughs) of her life. And that's not a bad thing. Laurie Metcalf is incredibly charismatic and compelling, much like Heidi Shrek is. So just because the character that Heidi Shrek is playing and what the constitution means to me is Heidi Shrek doesn't mean that she is not still playing a character.
5: It's parts of Heidi Shrek and parts of Heidi Shrek quote unquote
0: for sure. So as we wrap up this this quick conversation, I, I think it was very interesting as we're this is the Tony Omnibus special here. You talked mm-hmm. about the fact that we are still having a debate between what is going to win the Tony Award for best play. I tend to think that the traditional way of looking at this category is, I think, like you originally assumed, is that the mm-hmm. ferryman would win when the nominations came out. Um, and I said this to our mutual friend Casey Mink like, I, I content aside, I just don't see how the ferryman doesn't win. I right. don't know if that's changed because of everything that's happened in our country since then, but it definitely feels like the traditional w- wisdom of how this award normally works has changed a lot, and i 'm not ready mm. to s- necessarily say one 's going to win or the other, but what I thought was a slam dunk five weeks ago certainly sure. seems like a much different race than than it is now
5: I think it is a much different race um, and i think I think the ferry. i think you're right I think the ferryman was a shoe in before what the constitution means to me came to Broadway, and not only do we have a bit of a recency bias, but we do have a bias when it comes to... Actually, no. I was going to say we have a bias when it comes to what's going on in the news, but that's not always the case because sometimes if the news is relating to marginalized people... Other shows will still win. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's very clear. I mean, at the heart of it, I think it's very clear across entertainment industries that people want to treat art made by women and queer people and people of color as sort of an anomaly. And I mean, you know, how many times do you have to hear that this all-female creative team won't sell tickets and be proven wrong time and time again? You know, you and, then have... get, and then we get Hades tap. We get Hades Town, which is pulling in a million plus every week at full capacity. And what the Constitution means to me is pulling in 500,000 plus every week at full capacity. Waitress is in its third year. These are all shows with all female creative teams, and they're doing just fine. But yeah, I mean... The sooner we stop treating art made by women and and or people of color as the exception as not the exception, but the norm, the better the stories on our stage will be. And I mean, look at off Broadway. That's proof of that. Look at Fairview alone.
0: Mm hmm. And uh, that's actually something that ties in to a conversation that I'm going to have with uh, Deep Tran on this episode uh, as well. So we'll get into more of that later in the episode. But, Ashley, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with me about what the Constitution means to me. And I will be anxiously waiting on next Sunday night to see what actually does happen in this category. Abs-
5: absolutely. Thank you so much, Matt.
3: To myself here but Deadma I gone ask Are you really in the ground? Yes, I feel you all around me. Are you here? Dead mom Dead mom
0: Dead mom And now for something completely different I had the pleasure of talking to David Korins, the Tony-winning scenic designer behind shows including Passing Strange, The Pee Wee Herman Show, Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike, Motown, Bring It On, Hamilton, Dear Evan Hansen, Warpaint, Bandstand, and now Beetlejuice. In our chat, David shares the advice that he got early on that allowed him to have such an eclectic and varied career. I started our conversation by asking David, especially with respect to Beetlejuice, which is this huge, artistic, and yet technical marvel. How he starts the design process is it with a simple sketch with research or by diving into the script
3: uh,
6: well i mean it's funny i actually was hired on before there was even a writing team so um <laughs> so i've been working on the show for over six years um and Yes, you start with a sketch, but you really start with a lot of research and a lot of conversations. Um, Alex Timbers, the director, who I think is one of the great uh, voices of our generation in the theater, one of the great storytellers, has such an astute sense of um, visual, uh, you know, a visual vocabulary totally. and really has like a grand vision. And so he said to me on the very first day over six and a half years ago, hey, I think this thing takes place in a house where the Maitlands are kind of trapped. And we get to see the house evolve and be like another character in the show. And so, of course, with Tim Burton, who you know is one of the most iconic voices of his generation, you know, you go to the source material. We not only watch the movie, but we, you know, we. I really got Tim Burton's um, complete like compilation of all of his sketches, and that material is you know incredible, and it's very very deep. And I think the thing about Beetlejuice uh, is. People forget that Beetlejuice, the movie, was Tim Burton's second film. And they kind of conflate all of the different movies that have come in the last 30 years as kind of one huge Bertonian oeuvre. And I felt really strongly that we really wanted to honor kind of that overall body of work. And so where could we embed the set with, you know, lots of little Easter eggs from tons of Tim Burton movies? You know, the opening scene, which is in that graveyard is really kind of like a riff off of um, The Nightmare Before Christmas. You know, The Netherworld is kind of a riff off of Coraline. You know, in the on the tombstones, there's tons of different names and people and characters of like lots of other uh, film iconic, you know, film characters. Um, there are, you know, Jack Skellington's bow tie is is represented in the chandelier and, and on and on and on and on and on. Um, But you start with a sketch, you start with conversations, and you start with a floor plan. Like, what would it look like, and how would people move through space um, if we could do each one of the scenes by itself? And then you sort of, like, pare it down to lowest common denominator. What are things that could be shared? What are things that need to be changed? And one of the – obviously, as you nailed it, one of the great challenges of the design is that we get to do that house in four different versions, um, you know, completely – in making the choice to make it like a big huge wagon we had the ability to change the light fixtures the fireplace mantel the doors the windows the the balustrade on the staircase all every single surface of the wall and all the furniture so it's incredible but then as you know or you can imagine the technical difficulty to be able to do that is insane and then added to that those are not the only locations in the show and then added to that Every single piece of scenery has some kind of light in it, speaker in it, special effect, magic trick, access hole for a puppet, you know, I mean, you know, a place for a quick change, like whatever it is, and so all of that had to be then paired through, you know, uh, filtered through our own artistic sensibilities and still try to make it feel kind of homemade and makers, you know, vocabulary, because we didn't want it to feel super, super slick. And so it was for sure, the most complicated set design I've ever done. And I think the most complicated set design I've ever seen.
0: And I would imagine though, both from an artist and a storyteller perspective, though, that trying to figure out some of those problems and, and and how to achieve some of those difficulties, that had to be a ton of fun to do, especially when the set looks as cool as this one.
6: Absolutely. I mean, listen, it, when when you get a phone call and it's uh, Alex Timbers and, you know, Beetlejuice, you say yes. You know, this is kind of the brass <laughs> ring of what it is that we do as visual storytellers in the theater. Um, it doesn't get more exciting than Alex Timbers and Beetlejuice and Warner Brothers theatricals. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a yes. And then you go, Oh God, what are we going to (laughs) do? Then you sort of figure out like, Oh God, what did I just get myself into? Um, because I feel an enormous amount of responsibility. Um, I grew up watching Beetlejuice, a huge fan of Tim Burton's work, uh, you know, I felt a massive amount of responsibility to try and honor that body of work. Um, but it was. It was a lot of fun to kind of, you know, just get get right to it. And it's a real once in a lifetime opportunity.
0: When when you go through the process of obviously the show had its um out of town tryout in in DC and then you had however many months in between D.C. and in Broadway, because of how technical the show is, like you mentioned, and all the different things that the set has to uh, incorporate, how much were you able to adjust and change things either during the run in D.C. or previews on Broadway or in between?
6: Uh, we we adjusted some scenography Um some colors, some props, some dressing, some paint job, things like that. We didn't do a huge amount of like jawbone changes, you know, big, huge changes um, to the scenery. But, you know, the set designer, uh, I think when we are operating um, in the best part of collaboration, really acts as kind of a co-conceiver of the show and really acts as uh, an audience barometer in conversations and as a collaborator. I mean, one of the things that I'm so proud of with the design of Beetlejuice is it's hard to tell, where the scenery stops and the projections begin. And it's hard to tell where the, you know, we, we on a normal Broadway show have four designers, lighting, costumes, sound, and scenery. On our show, we add projections, magic, puppetry, special effects, you know, and so we have eight designers, and it really was a beautiful collaboration. And so I, although we didn't do a lot of scenery changes, I was very, very integral in the conversations about, um, you know, what I thought we needed to do to kind of nip and tuck the, the design and the process um, in between DC and, and Broadway.
0: Yeah, one one of the things that I really enjoy and uh, uh, about the set is that as you go through the changes and stuff, something that I think really sets a tone for it early on is when the version of the home is the Maitlands. It it looks like that you know country home kind of thing you'd see upstate or whatever, but you the lines of the house and the the furniture are still askew a, a little bit, so it it it. I don't know if that was done yeah. for foreshadowing or for, for some sort of functional purpose, but it lets you know well, that. Well, I while mean,
6: we, the thing the thing about uh, the Maitlands, you know, it's funny because we only see that, see that we only see that house once. I, I feel like w- there was a real de- a crossroad in the design process with Alex, in which we thought to ourselves, "Do we want to design the set without those wonky Bertonian angles or not?" And we did a whole version in which the house was, you know, straight up and down, rectilinear, um, perpendicular and parallel lines. And I also did a version that, you know, you see on stage right now. And we asked ourselves, is it too wonky? Does it it too much foreshadow the world? Is it too zany? And we we really, when we went back to all the, the source material, we really realized, you know, It's not a movie and we're not doing Beetlejuice the movie. We're doing Beetlejuice the show. And I felt like we would miss an opportunity if we did not really honor some of that hand done work. I mean, when I tell you that the entire set is hand drawn, I mean literally every single piece of scenery on stage, including all the wallpaper, every prop, every piece of dressing was hand drawn and hand painted over. So there isn't like a piece of wood that's raw that looks like a piece of wood. It's all gooped over, textured, to be heightened and to look like an illustration come to life. And as you know, when something is illustrated, it doesn't just come out like perfectly, you know, linear and straight. And so the wallpaper in the Maitland's home is literally hand drawn and then hand drawn onto once we printed it. So the whole thing wanted to pay homage to that model that Adam Maitland is building in the movie. You know, it's all that handmade work. And although the model does not exist in the set, uh, in the Broadway musical, we really wanted it to have this kind of real makers, homemade do it yourself quality.
0: Well, and there's, I mean, and that makes a ton of sense, even just coming back to Tim Burton's career, he, before he became a director, he was an animator. So I think that, that, Connection with uh, you know keeping things on the hand done animated side definitely gives a piece of of coming full circle with uh, with the original film as well. But you right. you you talk about looking at Tim Burton's original sketches and all that stuff, and that made me wonder just in general, not necessarily just with with Beetlejuice, but when you start on a new process. How how do you go about looking for or finding inspiration? Is it, I guess, how much of it is research? How much of it is kismet? And is there a way to really know going in where you're going to find the building blocks that you're going to put into whatever the scenic design is
6: that you're creating? Um, boy, you know, <laughs> I, I was told before I moved to New York, um, keep your head up. A lot of people walk on the sidewalk, you know, with their head down um, it, because it's a, it's a crazy city and people are moving at fast paces. Keep your head up. You're going to find inspiration on every single street corner. And I have found that to be true. You find inspiration in, in all sorts of strange places and you file them away in your mental Rolodex and you're not sure. You know, something you might see in 2003, you don't use until, uh, you know, 2019 when you're designing a different show. Um, I collect images both literally and also in my mind. You know, it with something like Tim Burton's world, you obviously go to the source and you look at his sketches and his renderings, his drawings, and his animation, and his movies and things like that. But then you also have to separate yourself from that. You know, this is not a Tim Burton, you know, musical. Yeah. Uh it's based on a Tim Burton property. You have to find a way to theatricalize it. When I look at the set for Beetlejuice, I see hundreds of collaborations that I've had over the years, and ideas that I was only half able to execute, or execute not not as well as we're doing it in Beetlejuice. I see the hands of thousands and thousands of artisans and craftspeople um, who have helped me realize designs over the years um, at work, you know, and I just see... Uh, I see so, like, such an extreme effort, and it really is, in a way, a culmination of the, you know, 20 some odd years I've been doing this as a professional designer. And so you sort of find inspiration from all sorts of places. <laughs> really and truly, there are certain things on this design that are things that, like, you know, I remember thinking as an intern in 1997 at Williamstown Theater Festival. You know, and either, it's it's like it's sort of all over the map.
0: Well, and and that kind of leads me to the question is that if you look at the shows that you've designed on Broadway, especially in the last decade uh, or, or so, there is such an eclectic uh, type. There are so many different looks and feels to the sets going from something like bring it on or or to Annie and then to Motown and Hamilton and Jervin Hansen and now Beetlejuice with a bunch of other stuff mixed in in between they are so different they look so different they rely on ha- so much hand drawn stuff with Beetlejuice but then something like Jervin Hansen has so many Screens and and things like that. Is there a signature David Corin's style? Do you? Is there something that you can say? While the pieces might all look different from show to show, there is something that is specifically coherent from one show to the next that is representative of your work.
6: Um, <laughs> my blood. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I try. Um, I think honestly, the answer is, and something I'm very very proud of. Hamilton should not look like Dear Evan Hansen at all, and totally. Pee Wee's Playhouse should not look like Bring It On, the musical, and Beetlejuice, you know, should not look like Vanya, Sonia, Masha, and Spike, you know, and and, yeah. and so to me, what I try and do is really look at the text and the show and think to myself, what is the best possible way to tell this story? You know, it's funny that we're talking about Beetlejuice and we're in the middle of this crazy award season and, you know, Brian Stokes Mitchell the other day referred to it as, you know, feeding season. or you know, like, <laughs> It's like such a crazy time. The, the honest to God truth is I, I, I probably could have made a lot of decisions over the years that would make the set be more showy or more eye catching. But what I have tried to do at every turn is to not think about my personal aesthetic decisions um, or, or preferences and to not think about like, Oh, what's like the coolest thing to do, but rather, what is the absolute best way to help focus and tell the story? Period. And I've tried and and I told myself that at the very beginning of my career, I would try and do that and be a world builder and a storyteller first, not someone chasing cool environments, not someone trying to infuse it with technology where it didn't want to exist, not someone trying to explore my own, you know, aesthetic preferences. I have other means to do that. I have other parts of my career and I have other hobbies, you know, I oil paint and I do other things. That's the, the, when I'm designing scenery, I'm trying to help tell the story the best I possibly can.
0: Yeah. And yeah. And I think that comes through with the eclectic nature of, of your work. And I I want to get you out on on just a couple things here and you you are obviously telling stories in other ways outside of theater. And one of the things I wanted to ask about is Hamilton, the exhibition and yes, that is um, I, I I'm not in Chicago, so I've only seen the pictures and the videos and stuff. How is telling a story with an exhibition like that different than creating the set where the musical actually takes place?
6: Oh well, I mean, the exhibition, first of all, is a uh, is a football field size tent in which the galleries are 360 degree, fully immersive. You're dealing with you know a, a metaphor or a big idea and an environment for almost every story point in Hamilton the show. And we also had to uh, you know I was the creative director as well as the designer of the exhibition, and so we had mm-hmm. to really put forth the the research with museum quality historically accurate uh, rigor you know this was not a play in which we could use artistic compression to tell a story this is a museum an exhibition uh and an experience that we have to actually tell facts and so you know and the other thing is we, when you design a show you're designing the scenery really i mean hamilton the musical takes place over 30 years there's you know 51 songs and you know 27,000 words or something and mm-hmm. and you could never wait for the scenery and you could never represent these things realistically. I mean, you couldn't wait to like, you know, put together Washington's tent and then quickly move to a battlefield and then quickly move to the Schuyler Mansion. With the gallery, the the viewer gets to literally go up and touch things. They get to spend as much time as they want in each gallery and take as deep of a dive and as wide as a dive as they possibly want to. And so it's a choose your own adventure with regard to time. And so it just demands a different sort of world building, you know, equally as thrilling. But, you know, you're immersing yourself in these environments as opposed to looking at them from 70 feet away.
0: Well, and it's it's not just a museum piece either, though. I mean, there's obviously, like you said, the facts and the historical rigor in it, but there is still a ton of design and artistry in it as well. I even mean, if you just go to the, the exhibition's website, you see the, the different pieces and set pieces that you're not even. set oh, yeah. pieces. I, I guess mean, there's, there's a lot you, of art if, to if it
6: too. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice is by far the most technical show I've ever worked on. And Hamilton, the exhibition is by far the most ambitious project I've ever worked on. I mean, it is, you know, including designing and building a building, literally, um, you know, it's an airplane hangar, essentially. Uh, yes. No. The there is more scenery in uh, Hamilton the exhibition than might be on Broadway cumulatively with all the shows. Wow. There, you know, if you think about, um, there are 18 galleries. Each one of them is essentially a massive Broadway show. Yeah. So, um, so you know, it's like it's sort of like if you walked, you know, from Forty Fifth Street and walked into every single theater, and then turned the corner and walked on Forty Sixth Street and walked into every single theater. That's kind of like walking through Hamilton the Exhibition. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of scenery. Yeah,
0: not daunting at all to uh, to put to put that all together. I'm sure
6: are you kidding? I did that in a weekend.
0: (laughs) Well, um, since you are obviously so busy that you have to do the entire exhibition uh, in a weekend, I want to leave on this question just because I think this is fun. You might not be able to even answer this question, but when you think about the Beetlejuice set, is there one thing in the design or in the execution of the set that is your favorite or something that you're the most proud of? Is there any like little thing that if people go and see the show, they can look at and say, Oh, that's what he was talking about. That's the thing I should keep my eye on.
6: Well, I mean, I, I really do. This is, this is not a, a pat answer. I have to say like <laughs> that there's something in there for everyone. If you're interested in magic illusions, puppetry, special effects, there are, inc- I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that like you can stare at that set and not tell how, you know, we're levitating. You know, we have two flying tricks. You can't tell how that happens. When you look at the design, I'm incredibly proud of the fact it's easy to say, oh yeah, the entire set's gonna change. But I mean, the entire set changes. Like literally every single piece of the thing changes. And it's not like the way they did the producers in which there was a doubled set, right? This is the actual set, it is changing. I'm incredibly proud of the fact that I think it maintains the DNA and honors the Tim Burton vocabulary, but really is decidedly our own version of the show. I'm incredibly proud that it actually works and stores and is safe and is um, fun and insightful. I'm incredibly proud of all of the different little details that we've been able to embroider in there. And I don't want people to spend a lot of time, you know, looking away from the action because obviously I want them to enjoy the show. But I, I would challenge you if you go and look at the show and just let your eye wander around the design. I mean, just in the Maitland's attic alone, there's probably 15 or 20 different hobbies they used to have in, in their, you know, life before they yeah. died that are represented in the walls. You know, there's just so many little things. And so I would say I'm just so proud of the overall effort and body of work. It really is, as I said earlier, a once-in-a-lifetime call to get.
3: I've got
0: Up next, I had the opportunity with speaking to acclaimed playwright Dominique Mauricio. While the Obie-winning writer has an extensive catalog of shows, including Pipeline, which you can see on Broadway HD right now, do it, trust me, she is widely known for her three-play cycle The Detroit Projects, which includes Detroit 67, Paradise Blue, and Skeleton Crew. For her first musical and her richly-deserved Broadway debut, Dominique returned to her hometown with Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations. In our chat, she talked about the extremely collaborative nature of writing a musical, why she encourages audiences to respond to her shows in whatever way they are moved to, and if you hang around until the very end of the episode, you might just hear us discussing our respective alma maters, which might happen to also be rivals. First off, congratulations on the Tony nomination and and all of the success of "Ain't Too Proud." I, I think this is um, a, a long time coming for you, having done so much incredible work off Broadway and in, oh. in New York and around the country to come oh, to to you. yeah, well to to come to Broadway with this show in your Broadway debut, a, sh- a show that. I I know a few years ago you said you put your mind to writing a musical and then this came and fell into your lap. But it's a story that obviously fits really well in with who you are as a person and a playwright with all of the Detroit connections. What does it mean to you to have come to Broadway with this and to have it be so well received in your Broadway debut?
4: Oh, uh, I mean, it's it's, a, it's incredible. It's amazing. I feel really, really excited for my hometown. <laughs> Because um, I, when I when I do things like this, you know, Detroiters, I know they're watching. They know what I'm doing because I'm pretty active in my hometown, um, in the in the theater scene, and in and in a lot of circles of of replanning and rebuilding in the city. And so they're paying attention, um, you know. And and I feel excited when I get to be any kind of ambassador for a Detroit story. Um, even though those aren't the only stories I tell because my, my canon is so heavy with them, you know, I, I really am being You know, you know, you're, you're never really, uh, honored at home, you know, (laughs) uh, you kind of leave home (laughs) to, to, to do what you can do. And at some, at some point when you are finally honored at home, it's, it's, I feel like I did my job. And so um, this is sort of an exciting moment. I remember at one of our first previews, a woman I didn't know, she's from Detroit. And we're actually um, now friends on social media. But she came to me and gave me a hug. And she said, you know, with tears in her eyes, she said, Detroit's on Broadway. And I just hugged her and I said, yeah, we are. And I know we both knew together what that meant, and that was really
0: special. That's awesome. Um, I want well, to get into the Detroit stuff and everything, but one of the things that uh, I really want to kind of focus on is the the process of, of writing this show because it is something that was kind of new for you. But I, I think yeah. a lot of people – Or at least a subset of the theater intelligentsia or whatever always rolls their eyes anytime they hear about a new bio musical coming to town. And yet they they love Jersey Boys. They love Beautiful. And now obviously so many of them love Ain't Too Proud. But having worked on this project now for a number of years, and it's uh, a critical and commercial success now that it's on the other side, what do you think in your experience it takes – to make a good bio musical, because generally all of them have good songs. That's a prerequisite to deciding to do it. But in terms of the book and the story, and your mind and experience, what allows it to be successful, whilst maybe some others aren't?
4: Uh, I think it is about. I think what people are always nervous about with uh, with a bio musical is that it won't be a bio. First of all, that or that it will be a very, you know, contrived bio. Yeah. Um, and that it won't know how to use the music in any other way than as a review, as a musical review, as like performance numbers. Mm-hmm. And um, and and I think that that's the, the nervousness of them because, you know, we want to come see this music get illuminated in a new way. We want to hear our favorite songs. But without a story to go with them, or if you get tired after a while, you know, unless, I mean, even if the performers are incredible, I think what sustains us for several hours, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. is something that's beyond just hearing these great songs sung by the people who did not originally sing them. And... um and I think that that's what people what, what makes a successful bio story. It seems because you know, I honestly don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the real answer is I have no idea. I feel like I'm shooting in the dark here. I don't. I, don't, I didn't. I did not approach this trying to write a great bio musical. I didn't yeah. even know. You know, jukebox sounds like a bad word when yeah. everybody said it. You know, <laughs> but I just for me, I just I, I just love their story, and I just wanted to tell their story. And I love their music. So for me, it was just like, oh, I can't wait to dive into this music and listen to it and find new meaning in it and try to connect that to their story and the story of American music and, and, and musicians in general at this time in, in our world when we are looking at the power of art in a divided nation. And that's what they were. So that to me was my my, I was more interested in that than I was anything else, to be honest.
0: Yeah, when when you were diving into that music and and trying to look at it through the lens of twenty whatever 16, 17, 18, 19, whenever you were started working on it, was there one specific song or verse or even little nugget of a lyric that seemed to be the most poignant for today that maybe you hadn't realized, despite the fact you probably knew the song beforehand.
4: Uh, sort of, you know, <laughs> like, uh, because a lot of the songs, I mean, there's obviously when they started getting into political music or, I mm, I should, well, when their music started to reflect social issues sometimes, like ball of confusion is obviously one that is directly hitting on the head, like where yeah. the social ill illness is. Um, I thought the surprising thing for me wasn't that kind of song. Wasn't wasn't those kind of lyrics. It was when a, a lyric that was between you know, maybe a man singing to a woman, it would be surprising how when when I when we would talk about the story structure and I would look at what songs we have, how how their music can be so much more than just romantic, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and how a song like I'm losing you can start to not be about a, a man to a woman. It can kind of crack open more and be about a man to other men, to his brothers and to his friends, and 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 also a, a group of men to their nation. And I was like, wow, you know, love is deeper than than heterosexual love. <laughs> you know, yeah. love is like it is transcendent and it is sort of the core of our collective humanity. So. If we look at the music that way, this stuff is about a whole lot more than we thought it was originally.
0: Yeah. You you mentioned, you know, when you dived in and you used the plural you used, you used we, dove into the story structure. And obviously theater in itself is always uh collaborative, but you're coming from a world where you were a playwright writing your story that you wanted to write, and obviously you had collaborators throughout, but this is a little bit of a different process since you were working with a director and with in an a state in the music, the you know, people who controlled the music. Was that process of trying to put together all of these different pieces and ideas and requirements uh, into this story was that different than you were used to? And you were just say writing a play on your own? Absolutely, and it was. Frankly, it was fascinating
4: to me how how deep the collaboration process is in the musical. How many collaborators it takes to put together like one idea for one scene. You know, it's yeah. like okay, so then our music director going to have to rearrange that song a little bit because I'm like, oh, I'm gonna change these. I want to move. Let's move these lyrics around a little bit. You know, to make this make sense, can this? I want this lyrics for this part of the show. You know, can we change this? Is that am I allowed to change the order of this song? You know, yeah. <laughs> like there was a lot of me going, "Am I allowed to do this? <laughs> this feels like the right <laughs> thing to me, but I don't know what the rules are." You know, <laughs> and how many other people were just like, uh yeah, yeah, we can do that. It's going to take like, the, but I didn't realize it's going to take like the creative mind of the music director to be like, okay, we. We figure out how, where we need to bring the music in, how we can cut the music right here to make that work. And it's going to take the choreographer, you know, <laughs> to help finish telling that story on their bodies. And it's going to take the vision of my director. It just takes so many people <laughs> to figure out, like, can I do this really quick? <laughs> you know? Um, and so that, to me, that's fascinating to me because as a playwright, I'm, I am just move anything around I want to. It's mine. But it has so much collateral impact in a musical, <laughs> um, you know, and and that's I think that's what's amazing about making musicals. It's it is a team sport. Even if one person gets honored in a couple, other people don't. You know, it's a team sport, and and to and to be nominated with so many, really, basically everybody else on my team that could be nominated. That's like what this is about for us, you know, <laughs> like that's yeah. what the show is about. That is the group and not just the individual.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to talk about some of these people that are in this group and especially the uh, the actors and the performers that get to live out all of that collaboration that you uh, and the rest of the team put together uh, on the page. This is obviously a group of men in The Temptations that for a lot of people that are of theater-going age, grew up with in some form uh, or another, and yet they're seeing them in a much different way, like you said, as opposed to you know going and seeing a concert with some form of The Temptations is still out there even today. But when you I'm got fine. these five men into the, these roles, and obviously you've had kind of a circuitous route to Broadway with a, a number of out-of-town I- engagements, how has that been working with them to really hone in on the story, but then also these people that while I think a lot of people know the Temptations as a group, maybe unless they've read the book or, or seen the the T V movie, don't really know much about them as individuals.
4: Yeah, that's right. And even if they have seen the the T V movie, because both the T V movie and, and I use the same source material of the mm-hmm. book, I was really interested in finding new things in the book that weren't in the movie. You know, oh, I didn't know this. They didn't cover that one in the movie because we can't cover everything, you know. Right. And so I was trying to find the things that they didn't cover because I love the movie so much. And, you know, I was like, well, that's its own thing. So let me see if I can find a way to do something different. Um, But I also just working with Derek Baskin, Ephraim Sykes, Jerry Cope, James Harkness, Juwan Jackson. And then those are just our classic five, but the entire ensemble, I mean, we have an ensemble of superstars, (laughs) like we have an ensemble of superstars. And, you know, ensembles are always the unsung heroes of Broadway. And, and there's, no, there's no different in our show. You know, I'm blown away by the person that has, like, two lines and, and then has that, you know, duet or whatever, as much as I am the person that's, like, you know, Derek, that has, like, all the lines, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, um, and, and, and when I first started working with them, and I saw, you know, when we were auditioning them, I mean, Derek Baskin made Tara Rubert and I cry in the audition. You know, we were yeah. like, well, I don't know anybody could do that. You know, <laughs> so we were, we were connected to him and he was so connected to the text, uh, initially that we just knew it was gonna, we had to, we had to have him and we had to fight for him. And he has just been such a gracious leader. He has really been the oldest of the story on stage and off. Uh, and I think that that means that Otis oh, was the real leader, the real backbone of the Temptations, and Derek is that for our cast. I mean, they admire him, they look up to him, they respect him, and and he encourages generosity in them, and they respond with in kind, you know. Um, so I'm I'm sort of blown away by his leadership. I'm blown away by Ephron's uh, just virtuosic ability, <laughs> you know. Um, he, he's just he, he, his. I think he's a dance prodigy, you know, and I think he's just also, but but his humble spirit, his willingness to try to learn to grow. Um, I think Ephraim was most. Uh, nervous talking to him about the the acting in the story, which is my territory, right? You know, when we were, were auditioning people, you know, Sergio's looking at the choreography. I had no idea what, like, you know, Sergio gives out these dance numbers. So sometimes if he wasn't in an audition with us, Dez would go, well, yeah, he, that, that person's good, but Sergio only gave them a three-plus or, you know, Sergio only gave them, like, a two-plus. And I was like, what the heck does that mean? I mean, he's good. Let's put him in the show, you know. So it was always, like, the negotiation between this person's a good dancer, but can they act? This person's a good actor, but can they sing, you know. And trying to find, like, a cast full well, of triple threats was a, was a journey. Uh, but the acting was always the most important thing for me, obviously, because it's the text. And, uh and when Ephraim came in, everybody knew him but me. <laughs> so they were all looking at me like, okay, somebody we think this could be the one, but it was sort of hinging on what are you going to think of his acting, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it was like the entire room, the producers, everybody was already pulling for Ephraim because uh, he was already a little superstar, but I just wasn't as familiar with him. And so it, it, it was always funny to me to watch him in the re- in the audition process because he was so wonderful, but the acting portion was the thing that everybody was nervous about for him because of me, <laughs> because I was the only one who wasn't already so it was your on fault. board. Yeah. Yeah. It would be my fault if I yeah. was in the <laughs> <So, laughs> you know? Um, but anyway, but he, he's been such a joy to work with He has grown so much. I have seen him in this process grow so incredibly. As um, as an actor performer as well, so to watch his like triple threatness just get stronger has been uh, incredible. And 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 Jeremy Pope is just such a generous, vulnerable artist who came and joined our team after they had already sort of formed, and um, and just fell right into place with them, and especially with uh, Derek and Ephraim, they just become so close, and to watch them perform Brotherhood on stage and know that that's as true as their brotherhood off stage. It's just, it's so beautiful to watch. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, this is a show that obviously has a lot of, like you mentioned earlier, um, personal connections, but but a lot of social impact uh, as well. And one of the things that is, you know, with all of the accolades and things, uh, the fact that you are one of the very few women of color that have the opportunity to be a writer in this Broadway season is obviously something that is frustrating for a lot of people um, none of which i 'm sure more than than you, but one of the things that I know is very important to you is representation for all types of people, people of color, not only on stage and on the creative teams off stage but in the audiences as well and I yeah. think anybody who 's Seen one of your plays is very familiar with uh, the fact that you are, um, you encourage people to react to the stories in whatever mm-hmm. way feels uh, authentic and organic to them. And while your traditional author's note isn't necessarily in the playbill for Ain't Too Proud, I would assume that it's the same way for this. And for maybe someone who hasn't seen one of your shows and comes to Ain't Too Proud and doesn't see this author's note, what is that? What is that about? Where does that come from and why is it important? to allow audiences to engage with a text and a show in whatever way is natural to them?
4: Oh, oh, uh, (laughs) uh, because I think it's about democracy in theater. And I think theater has to perform democracy at all times. We have to be the ones that model democracy for the world. And not on stage only. It has to be completely integrated in our entire pedagogy. And when we are allowing people to come as they truly are, the theater can be as holy a space as church. <laughs> you have to be mm-hmm. able to take people as they are uh, and uh, and not try to... to strip them of what is fundamental about them. Because we're not talking, I think people really, and I, wanna, I would love to say this, I think people truly confuse cultural response with, with audience rudeness. Those hmm. are two completely different things. Yeah. And I think people get nervous that when you're going to allow people to be cultural, culturally honest in their response, that somehow that's going to transfer to being rude and ungenerous um, audience members, and that's not what that's about. So I think that when someone's coming into a show to be rude, to not engage with the show, to sort of subtract from the show, um, maybe they're inebriated or, you know, feeling particularly vocal that day, that is completely separate than being a cultural responder. And engaging with the show. And and I I think we have to be careful when we start talking about this in general to not confuse those two things, because we're saying something really awful if we confuse those two things.
0: You know? Absolutely,
4: yeah, 100%. You know what I'm saying? And so, I, I, what I'm reacting to, what I am welcoming in the work, and which I have tried to push for, I did try to push for, uh, you know, the, not just my personal author's note, but some sense of what I would normally do off Broadway, some version of that on Broadway. And I don't think um, my entire producing team and, you know, and Broadway (laughs) producers in general, um, I just don't think that they're ready for that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that the show is going to make them ready because it's going to happen. It's happening. You know, I don't have to give people from, you know, uh, you know, Chicago and Detroit, and Minneapolis and, and, and Tennessee that are coming up to see the show. I don't have to give them any permission. <laughs> Do you yeah. 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 They're Get ready because here it comes. Yeah. <laughs> Get ready because yeah. here they come, yeah. you know um but it's just it's what i also why, why i like to include some kind of know or or have a sense of that welcoming space is that for people who aren't used to that that they know that they don't have to police it that they kind of can be liberated in their experience of watching the show as well and say oh i don't have to feel like this is bad i don't have to be nervous now that somebody's being rude i can now embrace that that is actually something that the show is welcoming. And I kind of feel free to have a different experience while I'm watching this show. And it makes everybody, it, it makes what I think is what, what I wish for and hope for is that it will not only um, cause the show to have the kind of air and breath that it needs, but that it will also be helpful in unifying audiences
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, to I think have a communal experience, you know? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say that theater is... Special and unique because it is a shared experience. It's not just the people on stage telling a story to you as an individual. It's people on stage telling a story to you as a group in the audience watching it. And when you yes. can be a part of a group rather than an individual sitting next to other individuals, it even heightens the experience of seeing that story in front of you. So I, I love that totally, uh, about that. Totally. So, yeah, well, me too. Yeah. So well, I'll wrap up with with this question. You, as we said, you're. You're a Detroiter who has written about Detroit in the past. You're on Broadway with a show about some of Detroit's most famous sons, so to speak. Uh, Mm. Is there there something that people come and see, come to the Imperial Theater and and see this show or go and see any of the, the other Detroit plays that you've written in the past? Is there something that you hope people take away about? who Detroiters are and what that city is, is like and has been through over the decades and generations?
4: Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, first of all, I, I hope that they see the depth of the human soul that is Detroit, uh, that it is complex and passionate and vibrant, that there are so many gifted people that, that emerge from that city because of the things that we go through that in that city, it inspires our artistic ability, I think. Um, and that ultimately, you know, I hope that they take away what I love about my city, which is the fierce passion and joy that we have and that that becomes infectious, you know, that you can spread a little of that, like, pure Detroitness yeah. around the, the world. <laughs> you know? Yeah. The pure Detroit-ness is, is the thing that I am and that I think that is, is my family, is, is all the people that I love and hold dear. That's the thing I hope to share with the world. A
7: black dog As we discussed, before
0: Ain't Too Proud, much of Mauricio's Theatrical work has been done off-Broadway, and if our next guest gets her way, that type of work will be eligible for theater's most public prizes as well. A week after the Tony nominations were announced, Deep Tran wrote an article for American Theater that advocated, for a number of reasons, for plays and musicals that are produced in New York, but not in one of Broadway's specific 41 theaters, to be eligible to win Tony Awards. We discussed those reasons, both logical and ethical, why she thinks that that should happen. So take a listen and let us know if you're on board to expand the Tonys in some form or fashion beyond just Midtown and Lincoln Center. Don't
3: pretend you heard. There's a hundred
0: For folks who haven't necessarily uh, had the opportunity to read the article, can you just kind of give the nuts and bolts of what your thesis and your argument was for why, A, you're not super interested in Broadway theater and the Tony Awards (laughs) specifically, and then B, why you would like to see this largest theatrical award ceremony include some of the off-Broadway and maybe even off-off-Broadway theater in the shows and, and, and works that are eligible for the Tonys?
3: Well, um,
7: I'll answer your first question, uh, why I don't care about Broadway. It's not that I don't care about Broadway or I don't appreciate it. I just think as someone who, you know, watches 150 shows a year, like shows from Broadway to like shows in like Bushwick, Brooklyn, like I, I see such a huge variety of theater and most of the time, like. The best work I've seen within a, a current year isn't on Broadway, and I feel like if we're going to, you know, market this award ceremony as quote unquote the best of American theater in a season, then like what does the best even mean? And for the Tony Awards, they're say, they're basically saying the best theater is theater that's big, budgeted, in a proscenium configuration. And if you've seen things like Sleep No More or, you know, Fairview, A Soho Rep, like, you would know, like, that's inaccurate. But those shows would never be eligible for a Tony Award. And that seemed interesting to me as someone who sees a lot of theater. And so then I thought... Okay. Besides the Tony Awards, what's like another big award ceremony that um, that theater makers consider, pre- consider prestigious? And so then I looked at the Pulitzers, which has a w- awarded you know both things on Broadway and off. And I found that within the last twenty years, a majority of the Pulitzer winner for best drama was for work that played either off Broadway or regionally and yet very few of those plays have won Tonys.
0: Yeah, and and in fact they've even used the Pulitzer Prize in some cases to get a show off Broadway that might not have otherwise come in uh to Broadway to actually get it there. They've actually used that prestigious award to be able to make it transfer for a commercial run, you know, in Midtown as well.
7: Exactly. And and the unfortunate thing is for our industry, like Broadway is still considered like the pinnacle of, you know, your career as a theater maker not not because like the work there produces the the work produced there is the best it's because the work that is produced on Broadway will then get name recognition and then it will then be produced regionally and so the value of a Broadway production isn't artistic it's financial and mark and marketing and so i thought how what can we do to make to like shine light A light on all of these artists that will probably never get a Broadway debut because they don't. Some artists don't make work for five hundred people in a proscenium setting.
0: Yeah, what's the what's the reaction been to the article either from theater fans or theater professionals of whatever type of ilk they might be?
7: Uh, Well, I've had reactions ranging from "You're an idiot" to. <laughs> of course, <laughs> they're theater like,
0: fans. We're gonna have a little bit of that, yeah.
7: Yeah, yeah. To um, this, this is such a good idea. Why hasn't it been done? To why just off Broadway? Why not create like a regional system of some sort? And so, like, my my thought about the piece wasn't just to like ask the American theater wing to do this thing that I'm very passionate that they do. It's also <laughs> to redefine how we think about the Tony Awards and about Broadway, because for most, like, the assumption is, like, Broadway's the best of theater and the Tony Awards rewards the best of theater, when that's not actually true. And so I'm just just trying to undermine some assumptions and ask some questions.
0: Yeah. Have you gotten any uh, actual answers to your questions from anybody who would be in a position to answer them uh, either officially or semi-officially? No. But I'm hopeful. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's uh, lots of people have suggestions on different types of uh, awards that could be added to the Tonys, and very rarely do they get much traction. But uh, I guess they did have some luck with getting the sound design back in a few years ago, so maybe there is still hope uh, in, in the future.
7: Yeah, and and I I just for me, you know, I, I know like it's mostly artists who who read American theater, so I just, it was just my way of saying. Don't be sad that you don't get to be produced in this very small, very small part of Manhattan. That that yeah. your work matters, even if it, it will never be televised.
0: One of the other points that you make in the article is that despite the plaudits that the community likes to give itself, Broadway is still a fairly white male enterprise, especially on the writing and directing side uh, of things, and that while that is still true off-Broadway. It is much so to a lesser degree off-Broadway. Mm-hmm. In fact, we've seen um, a, a lot of theater companies make a commitment to prioritizing representation, not only on stage, but in terms of writers and directors as well. I think other than like the Horton foot residency, I think signatures entire season is by women of color. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think off the top of my head, that's true. So we are seeing mm-hmm. some off-Broadway companies make those steps proactively do you think that there will be a a trickle-up kind of uh, effect on that if if the off-Broadway communities in New York or the off-Broadway theaters in New York make that commitment that eventually these shows, since we see so many shows move from off-Broadway to Broadway, do you think that that will have an impact on the works that eventually get produced on Broadway? Or do you think that it's just such a tough climb and there's so many out-of-date operations uh, institutionally in Broadway that it's going to take a lot more than just the laissez-faire actions of Broadway to actually make a difference.
7: Actually, it already has an impact. Like, the season, you know, only three plays and three musicals were created by women, only three works were created by authors of color, but on Broadway, but at the same time, like, most of those works by women and people of color, they were mounted off Broadway first, right. like, how the what the Constitution means to me by Heidi Schreck, you know, the only woman <laughs> to be nominated for Best Play this year, and I think,
0: like, she's, like,
7: only one of, like, three women who've been nominated for Best Play in the past 10 years or something like that, I don't that Sounds, to... yeah, sounds right. Oh, wait, the 12th woman ever to be nominated for Best Play. Wow. So that's fun. Yeah. But yeah, but like, or Hadestown by Aeneas Mitchell and directed by Rachel Traskin. Like those, like those works originated off Broadway and and producers, you know, Scott Rudin regularly goes to like Soho Rep to look for shows to produce. And so I think the more different kinds of work off producers can put up there, the more eyeballs, powerful eyeballs can then look at them and move them uptown if the work can't play to a bigger house And like for me, it just feels so funny that Terrell Aber McCraney didn't get his Broadway debut until this season, and it took him winning an Oscar to yeah. do it
0: <laughs> It's because he's had so much work well received off Broadway that you would have thought yeah. at some point somebody would have taken them you know taken the steps to bring him one of his shows to to midtown at some point.
7: Exactly, but they but they haven't until he won an Oscar. And yeah, so I'm just wh- thinking, why is the system like this, and yeah. how can we change it so that people aren't forced to like work in this very specific model in order to get a Broadway production or national recognition?
0: Well, one of the things I told you before we started was that I wasn't super worried about the logistical part of this because I'm sure there were people telling you how it was. Too logistically difficult uh, to make this yeah. work. So, so this isn't uh, this isn't necessarily um, that question. But if you did throw out the idea of the Tony Awards including off Broadway, would you like to see it a situation where all categories are open to both shows on and off Broadway, or are you thinking have uh, specific off Broadway awards? What in your in your perfect world, if the American Theater Wing came to you and said, "Deep, tell us how you want us to do this," how would you reconstruct the Tony Awards?
7: Uh, first of all, I think there are certain categories that, that probably should be split up by budget size only because, you know, with design, like the more money totally. you have, the fancier stuff you can do with it. But then there's certain categories, I think like best play, which should be just open generally. Though for me, I also think best play is, should be different from best production
0: totally because a
7: script and a, and a full realization of a script on its feet is, are two different, completely different things. And so perhaps production could be like a different differently tiered category depending on budget. And I know a lot of people were asking were asking me like, "Oh, how do you accommodate all of those voters because all of because, yeah. you know, the Tony voting pool is so big." But then I thought, well, the, we have like three different kinds of awards with off that Recognizes up Broadway. We have the Drama Desk. We have the Outer Critics Circle. We have the Lucille Lucille Lortels, the Obies, and so I just thought. So I'm just thinking, why not just combine all of those, all of yeah. those voting blocks? Like everyone's going to be seeing all the shows anyway, so just.
0: <laughs> why well, you don't need to reinvent the wheel? I mean, obviously the the organizations yeah. that work on those and, and produce those other awards. If you're gonna, if they're gonna be doing them anyway, I I would imagine they would probably get more recognition. By, you know, being a partnering. part of the Tony Awards, yeah, yeah, than than they would, you know, than the off Broadway league doing the Obies on their own.
7: Exactly, and and if, and for me, it's so funny how we have like five different award ceremonies in New York City. Like, I don't think we need that many. <laughs> frankly.
0: <laughs> yeah. Cause I can't keep them straight anyway. I can't keep them straight. What no. the difference is, what includes what, what awards are cl- including Hades Town this year or ba- the mm-hmm. bands visit last year. I can't remember who's doing what. So it all becomes really nebulous and just a little bit of a, just another way for us to pat ourselves on the back.
7: Exactly. And, and I, I know it's valuable for artists, but I think totally. the most valuable thing for them is just to get their names out there and to be recognized on some kind of national platform. You know, me speaking as someone who writes for a national platform, I get artists asking for coverage from all budget sizes. And so I would appreciate that Tony's giving me some help in this.
0: Absolutely. Well, to wrap up here, you've said what you think the best way to do this would be. So if if your envisioning of the ideal Tony Awards construction was to be put in place this season, what things that were not on Broadway this year would you like to get – or would you like to see get some Tony love or get some actual either nominations or wins? What non-Broadway stuff do you think deserves to be recognized on that level?
7: Oh, my God. There's just – like, there's <laughs> – I, I know I should have thought about this, but there's there's just so there's – there's just so many. Like, it's hard. I see more than 100 shows a year. There's just yeah. so many. You know – um Fairview by Jack Lee Slip Drury. Uh, Rags Parkland sings the songs of the future. And, oh, I just saw David, David Malloy's Octet last night. And. Oh, good. Yeah. And it's one of those musicals where it's like the, well, some of the best music I've heard this year, but it won't work in a 500 seat house. It right. Just won't. Or like Daddy and Slave Play by Jeremy O'Harris. Like he's the playwright of the moment, but if you're not living in New York, you've probably never heard of him.
0: Give it time. I think that'll change with him. Yeah. Soon.
7: Or like, God says this by Leon and Nowak Winkler. It's there's just so much stuff and it doesn't get recognized outside of our little, little tiny New York theater circle because it it's not it doesn't get televised or it doesn't get like a big splashy production with like a marquee. Yeah. And so I would I would like to just share the love to different kinds of people. And like Back to the diversity question, because off Broadway is so much more diverse, like the re like seeing theater in the regions is like that's the first time I ever saw, you know, Asian American writers who weren't named David Henry Huang.
3: <laughs>
7: and so like Operaway's doing all there's just, there's just so much great stuff happening from all kinds of writers. And somehow, like, commercial producers don't think any of that work deserves a bigger audience or will make money, which is ridiculous. And so every year you have this these complaints about, oh, my God, Broadway is so white. It needs to be better. And for me, I think it is getting better. It is getting better outside of Midtown. Yeah. And so, like, and as a person who thinks a lot about social justice, like, why do we need to, like, try to – change this very rigid system like why are we knocking on doors that don't want us why can't we just make our own system
0: yeah and this is maybe not necessarily an apples to apples comparison but what you just said it mirrors a lot of of what we hear from the film industry as well is that movies that are led by women or movies that are led by people of color don't don't make as much at the box office. And then over the last two or three years, we've seen major big budget films led by women and led by people of color that have done not only incredibly well at the box office, but in terms of awards. And we're finally Mm -hmm. at least starting to hear people talking about, Hey, maybe we need to change the way we think about this. Hopefully if we see that off Broadway, outside of Midtown, uh, the people who actually spend their money to produce Broadway shows Will catch on as well to the things that off Broadway and now very slowly Hollywood is learning as well.
7: Yeah, so I feel like Hollywood is one step ahead of us in this regard because like the Oscars recognizes all sorts of film in terms True. of budget levels. You have documentaries, you have animated films, and and you have you know and you have Marvel and Disney and there's big there's all the budgets recognized there. So why why is it so hard to like recognize different kinds of budgets for the Tonys?
0: For our final interview in this 2019 Tony Omnibus special, I spoke with Warren Carlyle. Having won a Tony Award for his choreography for After Midnight, a show which he was also nominated for directing, he also choreographed the 2011 revival of Follies, the revivals of On the 20th Century, She Loves Me, Hello Dolly, and much more. And in addition to After Midnight, he also directed and choreographed Tale of Two Cities, Finian's Rainbow, Chaplin, Hugh Jackman back on Broadway, and did the same for Jackman's current world tour. Shortly after the nominations were announced, I spoke with Warren about his process to staging intricate, iconic dance numbers like Too Darn Hot and Kiss Me Kate, as well as talking about the upcoming revival of The Music Man and his crazy schedule of opening Kiss Me Kate and going through the awards season in New York while prepping Hugh Jackman's tour in the UK. And that
2: is where we start our conversation. Yeah, I'm back. You know, Hugh's tour opens, I think, May 7th is the first performance in Glasgow, Scotland. So we'll go. I leave Saturday morning to go to the north of England to do all the technical rehearsals. We have a giant aircraft hangar with this huge um, set and all the technical aspects, all the video content, all the lights, all the sound, all of that good stuff uh, up in the north of England. And then I open that. I'll stay for a couple of shows just to make sure that it's really running well. And then I'm basically back May 10th.
0: Oh, okay. So that's a, that's a fairly quick turnaround for what I'm assuming is going to be a pretty big, uh, pretty big production.
2: Yeah, it's massive. It's massive. <laughs> I, would have but, no I mean, doubt. the good news is, I mean, the good news is I I feel like I've been rehearsing for this my whole life. You know, it's one of those. Yeah. You know, and Hugh and I have been working on a on a version of this for about eight years.
0: Well, I know you guys were in like Dubai or something together recently. Were, were yeah. you working on the show there too?
2: Yes. I mean, that was, a, that was like a top secret out of town tryout. <laughs> I mean, we had a really funny, you know, there's a beautiful, there's a really beautiful um, conference each year that happens there called the Global Teacher foundation where they honor basically the best teacher in the world um and Hugh went to present the prize this year um but while he was there we decided to present 30 minutes of his
3: arena of course show.
2: why not so the whole team like the whole team went all the video content went and uh the dancers went and we did a whole we, had, we did 30 minutes of the show actually which was good for us because it was all new material
0: well, I want to get back to that, but I, I want to start uh, with Kiss Me, Kate, since that is the, the show of the season uh, for you, and from a dance oh. standpoint, it is just so invigorating. I am not a dance person, per se, but when I saw <laughs> the show, and and after multiple numbers, but especially Too Darn Hot, I was just sitting there asking myself in my head, like, how do you do that? Like, obviously, you're in, I mean, you're incredible dancers, who I want to talk about in a minute, but I am just so from a logistical standpoint, fascinated by how you create this stunning, breathtaking in no, no pun intended for your dancers, like mm. 12 minute, <laughs> insanely high intensity number that for me, who's someone who has watched like the, the, the DVD of the, the, I think it was the tour or something of the last revival. So, so yeah. I know like your choreography certainly pays tribute to the two darn hots that have come before but it's also completely fresh and exciting how how do you do that like what's the first thing you do when you say i'm going to approach this gargantuan number what's the first thing that that you have to do whether it's pen to paper or working with bodies in a room
2: yeah i mean for me i for me i i actually was not aware of what came before i mean i knew it was a big i knew it was a big number but i but i really just started at the beginning i i started with what year is it where am I? Baltimore. It's 1948. What What of my references, so then I think the year before was like The Red Shoes, and the year after was On the Town. You know, I'm really a fan of those movie musicals, so I, I looked at what was around, and actually I have a list somewhere of, of all the movie musicals from the 40s. So I had a really good kind of frame of reference for period. I knew, there were a couple of things I knew right off the bat. I knew I never wanted it to pull back or take a breath. You know, sometimes <laughs> when you're building yeah. a sequence like that, you know, you do, you like, you do a halftime sequence within the middle of something, or you do a slow, you slow down and do some, you do like a slow-mo or something, or you do some slow, sexy partnering, or there's like, everyone's too hot, so it all slows down. And actually in this one, I, I made a very conscious decision that it was, was going to be like a, a 747 taking off, that I was going to have a very long runway, <laughs> and every single section was gonna climb. I, that was really, that was an early on thought about it. And I, I also, you know, it's like, I love dancers. I, I was a dancer. I spend my life watching dancers and working with dancers, and they're so beautiful at rest. That was another thing I wanted to capture is like, what happens to intermission? What happens when they're yeah. not performing, When it's observed? when it's observed behavior, not performed behavior? Or when they're doing it for the benefit of each other, not for an audience. You know, and it's really not until that last section that the number makes that turn kind of out front. All the other stuff yeah. feels more like they're just at play. I loved the I love the premise of battle of the sexes. You know, taming of the shrew is such an interesting, that's an interesting play. In this day and age, boy, is that interesting. So then I was keen to I was keen to get that in there too, that if the men dance, then the women would dance better. And if the women danced, <laughs> then the men would dance better. So I built into it, there's a kind of built in competition. There's a very, there is a very competitive nature to the dance and to the sections. And then, of course, I, I realized that Corbin Blue is a, is a wonderful tapper. In the script, it says, you know, give a Broadway hoof for a chance to play Shakespeare and look what happens. So I knew that hoofing had to be his language. And that also seemed like, well, no one's ever put Bill Calhoun actually into that number before. If he wasn't in the number, he's off stage for 45 minutes and the character's forgotten, really relegated to a secondary character. And his only chance to redeem himself is Bianca. So I thought, well, if I have a Bill that can really do this, why not add a different language in there? And, And that's a chance to, like, gear change up. And then once I added that, I was like, oh, but I have James T. Lane as well. So now oh. I've got the Nicholas Brothers. Now I've got the Nicholas Brothers. And it's like, yeah. that was so perfectly period correct. It's something that we can't see anymore. It's something that I loved choreographing. So I got to then gear change up with that and kind of blow the roof off with that. And then, you know, then I, then I start again and, and, and keep going. But it was it was really about a slow climb, a slow boil, And I just, I was just not going to rush it. I didn't want to rush. Uh, And I, I, you know, and I love to celebrate dances. I I think that's that wonderful thing that happens in the applause is, you know, the audiences at 54 are very polite and the the number finishes. And, you know, as you've seen, and, you know, the audience applaud. And then I think they realize what they're applauding for, that they realize (laughs) that these kids have just danced for almost 11 minutes. And there's a beautiful tipping point in the applause where it actually gets more and it gets extended you know it's a long applause uh, because i think they realize they're clapping for the dancers they're clapping for dance and clapping for the dancers and it's I've, i'm very moved by it very very moved by it as someone that's danced my whole life it's just you know i'm sure in her life kelly o'hara has had a lot of applause but those dancers they they don't get that kind of applause they don't get that kind of thanks they don't get that kind of affirmation um so i i love that they get that at the end of it and um you know, it's a great song to start with. Cole Porter's a really great person to collaborate. Like what great material for me. That's really that's really great. The song was really fun to stage. I really am fond of James T. Lane. He's an extremely dynamic performer. You know, he's he's got a lot of what I call wattage. That was easy and fun to stage, but I but I knew I knew what I wanted it to be. I really did. And and I spent a lot of time with David Chase, the dance arranger. And we wrote music for every single section and we tried things in a different order and we 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 fooled around for five days in pre production and then finally I was in rehearsal with the company and and off I went. But it was a it, it was an undertaking, it really was. And and a great challenge, you know, what a fun challenge for me.
0: Oh, I'm sure when you because I know uh, I think Roundabout released some video from the pre-production work sessions or whatever. When yeah. you go in, when you go into that pre-production or even if it's when you go into the room for actual rehearsals, how much do you have committed to paper or in your mind written in pen? This is not changing. And how much do you say, well, this is either in pen or there's nothing here and I'm going to work with these dancers who are incredibly talented, and we're going to figure it out together. Is it? Does it depend on the song? Does it depend on the dancers? What's your process with kind of pulling all of the disparate pieces into one cohesive number?
2: I normally, it's interesting talking about the entire show. I normally plan between sixty and seventy-five percent, just for my own stress level. <laughs> just so when I walk in, I, I don't feel stressed. Of, about not knowing what comes next you know I, I have a kind of confidence in my approach and certainly all of the big things i will have addressed and certainly all of the music every single part of the music i will know i'll know how to count it i'll know what sections i'm doing and i'll and i'll have an idea for every single beat of the show whether it's fully choreographed nah, probably not really 70 percent will be pre-choreographed but i but i do like divine intervention and and, and by divine, I mean from the actors. You know, it's like I love being able to collaborate. I love that I would say it looks like this, and they would say what about that? You know, it's like playing tennis with Roger Federer. It's just if you can collaborate with a good partner. And Kiss Me Kate, you know, I've got lots of good partners. And oh yeah. So that that was that was fun like that with a number like Too Darn Hot. Every section was for that one. It was pre-planned. Every section was choreographed. How I got from one section to the other was not planned. I, I tend not to plan the traffic.
0: Mm, that's interesting.
2: You know, I, I don't plan how it moves from one to the next because I actually like to do that with the real people, with the real shapes. But each section, we could kind of blanket teach each each section like an audition combo. And then we'll we stop and then we teach the next section and then we stop and then we teach the next section and then we stop and we teach the next section. And then slowly I'll stitch it together and say, you three do that section. You two sit on that crate, you two run across the stage, like I'll, I slowly paint like that, but with a big number like that, it actually helps if they know the steps because then then, then they 're in a position to kind of problem solve with me if they don 't know where they 're going and they don 't know what they 're doing, sometimes that spells disaster
0: uh, sure sure do you, when you when you go into that, is it different when you 're doing these huge signature iconic? Dance centerpieces like Too Darn Hot, Too Darn Hot or like Waiter's Gallop than it is if you're just doing a regular number that has dancing in it. Is it is, is your process different from those big focal dance points as it is to just a, a regular musical theater song that has choreography as well? No, I feel like
2: it's the same actually. I mean, it just they just take more time. That's all. You <laughs> I'm know, sure. Too Darn Hot. I you know Too Darn Hot. I planned for five five days. And Tom, Dick, and Harry probably took me two, you know, it's it's or Bianca. Well, actually, Bianca's different entirely because that one I had a couple of goes at. You know, that one, that number just changed the most of all of the numbers. It started as a soft shoe. Then it grew into a tap number. Then it grew into a tap number for the ladies. And then it grew into a staircase dance. And then it grew into him dancing on the ceiling. Like that one, <laughs> that one had the biggest evolution of all because you know in the rehearsal room i hadn't accounted for david rockwell's incredible set right and then when i get in the theater all i can see is those three levels and then i see three levels and i know i have to dance on three levels and then i sit in the fifth row and all i can see the whole show is the underneath of that kind of level i'm just looking at the at the ceiling of the second level and and i can't believe and i just have to put his feet up there you know he's corbin had danced everywhere else on that set yeah um and it seemed like I just, that was the only real estate that I hadn't used.
0: Was there a bar there that he could pull himself up with like he did in the show? Or did you have to have David Rockwell's team add that in there so that he could actually pull his body up to get his feet on the on the ceiling?
2: We had to add it. We added yeah. it in previews, actually. We <laughs> we probably added it two days before you saw it, in fact. I mean, it was oh, wow. a very, very late, it was a very late addition. And I, and I stood up there and said, I think this part needs reinforcing. And I would love to put his feet here. I think he could swing up from this side, give me a monkey bar here, and give me a, a monkey bar there. And like that, so we added two two kind of bars across, and then one um, underneath to reinforce.
0: That's amazing. Well, and that that kind of brings me to something that I wanted to to ask about your obviously reinforcing things to make sure that he is safe. Unfortunately, when I saw the show, you had a dancer get hurt in Too Darn Hot. Haley Fish uh, hurt her foot Mm. the night I was there. um, And uh, my friend Sarah Meal went on in, in her place. When you work on these big numbers, like you said, that are like 747s that ramp up and keep going and there's no time for it to slow down, how do you take into account making sure the dancers... Are themselves ready. Obviously, I think what happened with Haley was just kind of a freak thing. But just these are people and you you know, they can obviously push themselves really far. But I'm sure that's part of the equation that as a dancer and now a choreographer, you got to kind of figure what's too far? What's, you know, how much yeah. farther can I push these folks?
2: It's interesting. It's like sports, I think. I mean, dance is really a sport. And, and in sure. a funny way, it's like training, training for the long jump or, or training for the high jump. It's like, You practice, you practice your squats, you strengthen your legs, you strengthen your ankles, you rehearse it a million times, you pace out your runway to your jump, you do all of those things. And it's funny, in rehearsal, we spent a lot of time, It's like, I spend a lot of time making sure they're safe. I spent a lot of time with Phil LaDuca on those shoes. You know, we have specially designed shoes that have never been... um, worn before for this stance because it's so demanding um i do spend a lot of time i spend a lot of time on safety we spend a lot of time on strength training we spend a lot of time on on conditioning to do what they have to do and we do each section slowly we do each step slowly um but you know sometimes sometimes it just sometimes the body is just the body and and it just it gives out at a strange time or your weight is in a slightly different place that just causes something else or a, a muscle above the knee will pull in one way that causes an ankle to roll or sometimes just the foot inside the shoe is in a slightly different position and the, and the, and the foot will, will cause you to go. Or sometimes it's just, sometimes it's just, I've done it too. Sometimes you're just, your weight is just in the wrong place at the wrong time and it just, it takes you over. Um, yeah. it's, it's unbelievably horrifying. I have to say, I, I'm always, 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 um, mortally wounded by it when one of my people goes down that's my, that's my person that's my family i mean yeah it's really it's really tough and it's also it's someone's livelihood too you know i look at something like that that moment with Haley, and i you know i thank god that she's young enough that her body will heal fast and she will have a very long career ahead of her but an injury like that in your 40s is really tough sure. so i really um I, I I do worry about it, but we do spend a lot of time conditioning. We do spend a lot of the rehearsal making sure they are safe um, and making sure they can do things at speed. That's the other thing because you know these things are, are fairly easy slow, but then you add yeah. then you add speed to it, and then that's where the real skill that's where the real skill comes, and you know that's where the audition process actually is very very important, is because I have to really. I have to really test drive these dancers. I have to really take them for a spin and I have to really find out where the limits are. Yeah. Um, Is, is,
0: is there a Warren Carlyle type of dancer? Is there a certain type of whether it's a male, female, just in general, is there a type of dancer that you look for that works well with the type of, of choreography that you like to do?
2: Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, I, I, I respond to, I respond to certain things. So I, I respond to beautiful technique. I love good technique. I was trained as a classical ballet dancer. So someone with really good technique, like Will, Will Burton is a good example. Mm -hmm. Tom, Dick and Harry, there's a lovely double tour in there. That's very hard to execute. Um, I like long, I like long limbs, um, because I think they make very pretty lines. I think those lines are really good. I like rhythm. I like people that have rhythm um, because quite often my my choreography, even if it's not tap choreography, is rhythmical. Too darn hot is an extremely rhythmical dance, even the jiving stuff. You know, all the period stuff is very rhythmical. I like dancers that can act at the same time as they're dancing or act through dance. I think that's important. Um, Long lines, good technique, rhythm. (laughs) speed they generally have to be able to execute things at speed because even though i'm a big guy i'm six foot two six foot three i actually like people to be able to move fairly fast and i do i look for all those things i look for all those things when i'm casting
0: yeah i would imagine you'd have to yeah yeah well so you you mentioned that it's nice that someone like Haley, if she's going to get hurt she's younger and not too um to out one of the most famous people in the world but Hugh Jackman is not uh, necessarily young when it comes to dancers uh, <laughs> no, and I'm sure he won't uh, be offended by that I'm, I'm sure but he, you are putting together this thing you've been working with him on this show for 8 years but I think your collaboration with him goes back to to Oklahoma right in was yeah, that ninety eight? 21 99?
2: years so 21 it, years
0: so you know him, you know what he can do. How much can you throw at a guy who is literally a superhero and despite being 50, 50-ish years old, 50. in incredible shape, how do you go about deciding what you're going to make Hugh Jackman do? Because I'm sure he has final approval, but after 21 years, I'm sure he trusts you to tell him what his body can and can't do.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's, he's incredible. He's an incredible athlete. He loves a challenge. I mean, I have to say, in this in this particular show, he is dancing more than he ever has. He is really, really dancing in lots of different styles and lots of different ways, and and he loves a challenge. This this is this is really fun for him and really fun for me. And actually, he's he's the one that's going to kill me. He's I'm the one that's going to have a heart attack. He's going to be just <laughs> fine, you know. He's just he's a he's an insatiable rehearser. He loves to rehearse. Um, and he loves to rehearse full out at one hundred and fifty percent, and it's and it is so wonderful. It's so refreshing to be in a room with him, and and he meets the challenge every single time. Every single time, I think I've come up with something that that will stump him or really challenge him. He he comes back the next day with it done. I mean, he's he is a, he is a superhero. He's a choreographic superhero. Well,
0: that's bit, I mean, I saw the show back in two thousand and eleven. Hugh Jackman back on Broadway. I mean, it was yeah yeah. It, it, you forget that this guy isn't a list world famous movie star when you see him up there yeah. it, it's it really is kind of breathtaking when you say oh wait that's a guy that I, that makes you know movies that bring in a billion dollars at the box office it's uh it's it's yeah. quite incredible to see him do that so um to kind of wrap up this after the tour. He's going on this big worldwide tour. Then you guys are back to work together again in like a year and a half from now on Broadway in a show that's not necessarily something that I think folks would imagine is a huge choreographic piece. But you're going to be working together again back on Broadway in The Music Man. Are you going to find ways to get him to dance in that? Because there's obviously dancing with the kids and Zanetta and Tommy Gilis. But you know, Professor Harold Hill's never exactly been a dancing role. Are we going to see Harold Hill dancing in this one? Yeah, I <laughs> yeah.
2: think definitely, Matt. I think definitely. I mean, I think you know, dance is an amazing con. Like, what what better con? Oh than wow, dance? yeah, I love that. Right? It's like it's to me. You know, to me as a, as a choreographic mind, I'm like, oh, this is perfect. While they're looking at while they're looking at his feet, he's stealing their hearts and their wallets. It's like this is
0: brilliant. Oh man,
2: I really I've never thought that. So yeah. I think it's like part of that double talk. You know, it's like part of that double talk. Choreography is really. Wonderful distraction to lots of things, um, and he he's really good at communicating through dance. So, uh, as as we dive into Music Man in the coming months and and, and the coming year, I, I have a feeling there'll be some there'll be some real dancing, and with Sutton too. You know, she loves to oh, dance, of and uh, it's a it's a creative team that loves dance. So so look out, there could be some surprises in there.
0: Now, if correct me if I'm wrong, but is this the the first time you've worked with Sutton? Then
2: it is. It actually is. I staged the Tonys in mm, whenever she did Violet, so I, it may have been 2014. She was nominated for Best Actress. Yeah, it yeah. was that year, so it was yeah. 2014. So I staged the Tonys that year for the telecast. So I had I had a very brief interaction with Sutton um, during during the Tony rehearsals that year. We did a little bit of staging together. But, but that was it. But I, you know, I, I've lived in New York for 20 years. I've been a huge fan of hers. I've seen everything she's ever done. Uh, And I can't wait to get my hands on her, actually. can't (laughs) wait.
0: Yeah, well, she's someone who, you know, very much like Hugh, is, is a huge musical theater star, but is a star in her own right outside of the Broadway sphere, but is really a triple threat, can can do it all. So I'm super excited to see not only what you, but Jack O'Brien and everybody else with the team comes up with uh, these two together, because yeah. it seems just like a, you know, no pun intended, a, a, a super team to put together for just an incredible show that uh, means so much to so many people in the theater community
2: yeah i mean yeah to me too it's it's really it's really a special one it really is it's it's such a lovely unexpected love affair you know two people who thought they were really happy who had everything in their lives that they thought they needed the last thing they realized was that they needed each other and it's really it's really a lovely lovely story
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. My name is Matt Tamanini. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at matt, and you can reach out to Broadway Radio on both Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. You can find links to all of our guests' social media accounts, as well as links to their respective shows, websites, etc., in the show notes and on BroadwayRadio.com. Tell Me More is produced and edited by me. Special thanks, of course, to our guests Beth, Ashley, David, Dominique, Deep, and Warren, as well as Lisa Goldberg, Alexis Reynolds, Michael Jorgensen, Brianna Sanchez, and the man without whom none of Broadway Radio is possible, James Marino. Thanks again for listening, and remember, as we head into the last week of Tony season, the overture is about to start. You cross your fingers and hold your heart. It's curtain time, and away we go. Another opening of another show. Also, always get a second scoop, and when you get the chance, ask people to tell you more. As a, as a native of Ohio, there's always a bit of camaraderie with people from Michigan and always a bit of rivalry yes. with people from yeah, Michigan. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, so, listen,
4: because I went to the University of Michigan, so Ohio State is like, oh, you know, our um, complete rivals, and yet, you know, we love, we're awful cousins, you yeah. know?
0: Trust me, I, I went to Ohio State, so I know that feeling very oh, well.
4: Yeah. <laughs> so, oh my god, we've been talking this whole time without know. knowing well, <laughs> well trust
0: me, every about two thirds of the people I interview are Michigan grads. So I'm I'm quite used to uh-huh. uh, to talking to Wolverines. Right. That's
4: right. You know, Philia Keenan Bolger and I we went to, we were in a we were in a theater together. Oh at wow. Michigan. At the we same were there time? at the same time. It's,
0: yeah, I, I, that's one of the things that makes it hard to take my sports loving side and translate it over to the theater loving side because if i was really that passionate about it in the theater side of it i couldn't i couldn't love like half of the people that that i love in the theater because they all came from ann arbor so uh i've I've got to be able to put that aside